Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. episode of the bitcoin podcast on the bitcoin podcast network five years going our five-year anniversary was two three weeks ago Corey had a baby so obviously we didn't celebrate it but now we're celebrating the birth of Corey's baby but anyways i'm the host of talks first d and i'm the other one and is this not the dr- uh, the drunk episode? Did I prepare wrong? This is not the drunk episode, but if you've had oh, uh, a couple of my ties, you get the go. Okay. I'm yes to crypto. <laughs> Shout out to everybody in the Slack. Hold up. Wait, I missed it. Here we go. There we go. All right. So. Shout out. Slack's been pretty good. I mean, I, you know, the, the more I get into the Slack, the more it's like, okay, I'm I'm here. Let's talk. And then you know, there's a little bit of dead silence. And then, then I you know I go away for a couple hours. I come back, and then there's this big conversation that's been going on about something. It's like, oh, okay. Now let me let me get into that. And it's just it's just a really neat community. Uh, I feel like we need to figure out a a way to put a calendar on there or something so that the people in the community who are doing things like hey, like someone was talking about, hey, this is launching. You know, there might be a launch. There might be a meetup, you know, an online meetup. There may be uh, a YouTube premiere where a couple of us are going. And I, I think that would help solidify some of the the little clicks that happen. It clicks in a good way, not in a bad way. But, you know, little groups like, you know, there's a couple of people over here talking about comp and, and more DeFi. And there's a couple of people over here talking about mining and a couple of people over here talking about, you know, Fed's encroachment. And I'd like to encourage those kinds of you know, little uh, birds of a feather you know, that you might get at a conference. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, so what interview you got this week? Who are you, who are you bringing on after we talk? Uh, this week is going to be um, Michael, Matt, sorry, not Michael, Matthew Feinstein, Feinstone. Wow. Come on now. Come on, brain. Michael. Jesus. Jesus, man. <laughs> Matthew Feinstone from Loopering. Um, Loopring is a is a DeFi play. It's a decentralization play. But I think there's more that meets the eye than that. I don't know. Back when I first got into crypto, decentralization seemed like something that's really, really awesome. And now as time goes on, it seems like decentralization seems to be something that's unsustainable for humanity. But it's good to decentralize as much as possible to encourage... I don't know, the purity of a system. 
if not purity, the sustainability of it. I don't know. I don't want to say sustainability because I just said that. But like, for example, <laughs> power is if power is decentralized, then no one single source of power um, can reign supreme. So you get what's supposed to be a balanced uh, distribution of power. For example, in the in the U.S. government, there's executive, legislative, judicial branch, each with different powers in different lanes, and uh, that distributes power. So no one branch can control all of the United States, right? And then you have decentralization and ideologies. Blah 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 blah. Uh, but I think that um, now. In the, on the planet, like more than ever, it seems like uh, governments don't uh, uh, know what the fuck they're doing. I don't know. It just <laughs> it just seems like like I read an article just this morning that like in Lebanon there's hyperinflation and they lost seventy percent of their value overnight. And right, every few months, it's another another country, another fiat, another toppling of the government. And I would say for for anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about this. One of my one of my favorite celebrities, I guess, in the crypto space, Andreas Antonopoulos. He today did a premiere of his Anon Summit or an Anon Summit type talk, and it was specifically about you know rules uh, without rulers. And it's not the same rules without rulers talk that he did a year or two ago, but this one specifically talks about what you're talking about, where the forms of government and the forms of societal our economic policies and what gets people, you know, transaction commerce together, making rules like what should govern the, the rules, the courts and things like that. That is failing us because it's failing to scale. And we in the cryptocurrency know a little bit about scaling debates. And and he sums it up with it's not necessarily about communism or socialism or capitalism or a democracy or modified democracy or a democratic republic or all these different ways of governing, but they all fail to scale with the sheer number of people that we have trying to make decisions, as well as the sheer extremes within the little decisions that go on. So when you have, you know, a tribe of 150 people or a, a small group of a couple dozen, it's it's harder to hide as a non-productive member of that group. It's, it's harder to get away with things. But when you have hundreds of millions of people and a very small representative number of people calling the shots, and that's basically what you have in every kind of societal group, whether it be communist, socialist, capitalist, democratic, whatever, you pre frequently have a very small number of people calling the shots, whether it's dictatorial in nature or um, a perception of representational in nature. And this is where I think blockchain saves us. Or Blockchain is a set of tools. The way we are handling governance, the way we're handling squabbles and compromise and the things that have to work in order for... Mm -hmm. Bitcoin and other governance-laden uh, systems to actually work, we could take a lot of that such that we could make over decades a system of government that is truly representational of m more than just mob rule, more than just a vote, 
more than just, you know, you know, getting people interested, getting people engaged, but still not having vast majority in the hands of a few. And I think governance takes a, a huge part of that. It takes it takes is that, a massive is that what you're talking about as a governance? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about governance and it. And what the things I, I'm excited about Bitcoin is that it offers the opportunity to have um, commerce that isn't like solely dependent upon the government. Um, like now, in fact, it's completely separate from. It's completely right? separate from. It's like separation of money and state, and that was something I loved. That I love that phrase, and and now it seems like you. It's it's impossible to separate the two. With the current monetary systems, like they're we're printing a trillion dollars a month, man, that is blowing my mind. I don't know about you, Wayne, but is that that to me, I mean, that is blowing my mind. I don't know how that's even sure. When, when, I, when I when I first heard of something called the national debt, it was in the it was in the eighties, and then the next time I heard about it, I, I just, I don't remember what year it was or who was president or anything like that. I just remember it being in the news that we crossed 10 trillion in national debt and that it was just this huge thing. And then it seemed like in a blink of an eye, blink of an eye, we crossed 20 trillion. And now we're like at whatever, 26, I don't know, 30. I, I, we're, I don't even know where we are now. I haven't, I'm not watching the U S debt clock, but I'm gonna look it up what you're what you're talking about in this fiat world is and i don't know if you saw that the new york fed came out with their um i don't know it was a report or a press release but basically they're saying yeah bitcoin's fiat too <laughs> um and they're saying that they don't think bitcoin is a new kind of money and you know that had i think your favorite person in the world schiff <laughs> said yeah bitcoin is fiat as well and, you know, for those real new, you know, I, I kind of even struggled with the term fiat for a while because it's like, okay, what are you talking about fiat? And it's just, you know, money that the government tells you is good because various reasons, but generally you have to pay your taxes in it. So the intrinsic value of a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill is z near zero, but the expected value when you get it and then you can move it on to someone else that's why it's called currency, current, like water flowing currency. The money flows through economic activity and, you know, falls down the hill and waters bunches of different plants and stuff like that. So as, you know, as the currency feeds the system, it's not meant to be that store of value. And so fiat being something dictated by the government as value, everybody goes along. Yeah. It's... um but why would like why would they continue? It's almost like I want to opt out. Well, why wouldn't they? It, I mean, you, you gotta people generally everywhere in the world doesn't matter what system they're in, doesn't matter where they're born, they just live their life, right? They they a lot of them have kids. They want to send their kids to school. They want to make a decent wage. They want to be able to consume. They want to be able. To, I mean, in, you know, some places they play sports, and some places they go to the bar and some places they go to the park. And I mean, most people are just looking to live their life. So they don't care about a lot of the things everyone else cares about. Everyone else has their pet projects. Some people love PETA and fight against them. Some people have wounded warriors and they fight for them. 
Some people care about the money like we do. Like, you know, hey, you don't have solid money. So, you know, the same kind of claim can be said so often, why don't people wake up? And you can take that same phrase against a hundred different projects that people might adopt in their life. That's true. Right? Why, why don't they wake up? Why don't you wake up about wounded warriors? Why don't, you know, Hey, I actually pay wounded Joe warriors Burrow. every month, actually $30 a month. So that's awesome. it is, they got me. No, I'm kidding. They didn't get me. I was walking in a mall in Austin and, um, I don't know. This was good timing. I don't know. So I signed up for it and I've been paying for a couple of years because I don't know. Cousins is a veteran, but nevertheless, it's um, it's good. I w- Everybody has projects. And I think the sheltered but somebody's projects are chamber. more important than others. Wayne, well, our, part, well, exactly. our project is more important than theirs. We're talking about right. And sound. This is, this is this project's podcast money here. Okay. Nobody cares about uh, the dolphins. All right, we're talking about sound <laughs> money. My wife does. She she got so so touched by the the dolphin trade that was happening somewhere over around the world, and you know we sponsor kids in Africa, and we you know there's always something, and in our little echo chamber we we frequently can make the same kind of complaints. How how can people live their life knowing that, you know slave labor builds iPhones and how can we, you know, all these different things that people can, can push to, to some sort of action. And for us, it's, this conversation is about money and how corrupt a society can be for this quote unquote almighty dollar. And then people frequently will take the worst of whatever demon that they're exercising and then use that as the, the sound the soundboard for pushing a specific agenda. Mm. Well, decentralization and Bitcoin fix that. No, I'm kidding. But I I think decentralization does a lot towards that, especially in, in the governance that you're talking about. Now, whether it be governance for rules of a coin or governance for fees or governance for scaling or governance for a DAO type thing, you know, I I've definitely thought a lot about, on the nonprofits that I'm part of or the companies that I'm a part of, how interesting would it be for the bylaws and the the kind of the agreed upon rules to be more decentralized instead of a board of officers or a board of directors with these rules and the bylaws? How do we put that on chain? Uh, sorry, I just got so distracted. Uh, I know you're talking about governance, but I pulled up the usdebtclock.org. It's one of my favorite sites. Oh. And there's a new section that says, get it, get this. So there's a dollar to oil ratio, dollar to silver ratio, dollar to gold ratio, and dollar to crypto ratio. Crypto? Dollar to crypto ratio. Interesting. There's two of them on here, though. 165.53. Wow. So the total U.S. M2 money supply divided by the total market capitalization of all cryptocurrencies. The, okay, the so source, that's got to be tiny. The source is the Federal Reserve. And then the dollar crypto ratio is, there's another one, the dollar crypto ratio in 2013. So it's $65.53 to one. 
And then the dollar to crypto ratio in 2013 was $9,735 to one. Interesting. I don't know if they're measuring. So I haven't seen that stuff in a while. Is M2, what is M2? 80 trillion, 100 trillion, somewhere around? What, what M2 is, that? is 18 trillion right now. And M2 consists of. 18? As in 1.8? Yeah, 1.8. Yeah. That's a lot lower than I thought, unless I was thinking if it was. Well, it's up from 4, four trillion. Hmm. Two, well, then does it say what M3 is? It doesn't say what M3 is. I'm sure it does. Okay. This, uh, this website is like on cocaine compared to the way I used to look at it. Uh, oh, that's why the dollar to crypto ratio in 2013 was just Bitcoin pretty much. And the price of Bitcoin was well, about yeah, 9735 and then it crashed, of course. Uh, but then, no, no. 2013, it never, it never went over. That's right. 1500. Wait, it so was, why? It, it, it went from 200 up to 1200 and then it went crashed down back to 250 ish. Then this doesn't make any sense. Like, why is it 9,735 to one? Yeah, unless they're doing some sort of inflation adjusted. Because, you know, with all the printing that happened in 2008, which, which of course, before 2013, but the quantitative easing that happened and then the printing that's been going on, the inflation rate is steadily climbing, Mm. which I think is another thing that people... I think need to wake up to because they're not realizing what inflation does to their taxes. So if, if you buy something for $100,000, like a house, and then five years later, you sell it for $400,000, you think you made $300,000 and you'll have to pay taxes on the $300,000. But if the money supply is inflated a tremendous amount, those are fake dollars and fake taxes. Mm. You see what I'm getting at there? I am. We need some oh, governance man. for, so I, I think as politicians show their colors for adopting of a free and open decentralized currency or, or store of money, store of value, one of those, right? We'll see what happens with, you know, a Fed coin, if it ever comes out or ETFs, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about and what happens with governance. What what is governance to you? Can you can you describe in ten words or less governance? An emergent. All right, here we go. Here we go. Ten words or less. Ooh, this is gonna be good. An emerge. A structure. Uh, 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 okay, wait. Let me get my mind together on this one. Are you at twenty two words? An so emergent characteristic of structured civility. That's only four, because I don't count the ofs and these and ands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And emerging... I like... You said civility, right? Of structured civility. That's right. I think governments and that, governance and governments are a natural emergent property of people all trying to live together civilly. Because I think yeah. our more natural tendency is the uncivil way of living together, which is, hey, you're in my yard. I'm bigger than you. I'm going to punch you in your face and take your stuff. I think we're really more animalistic than we give ourselves credit for. So I think we create all these constructs of civility to live together harmoniously. And I think a government is like the 
natural emergent characteristic of that is like, oh, okay, we're all living together in an organized way. Well, let's create this entity that organizes the organization. And that's just what it is. It's like, I don't have all day in the world to worry about the fucking water pipes that run through this neighborhood. I need, uh, you know, nor would a single person uh, build copper across the country. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it has to, there, you know, and, and a military, generally people are going to defend their own property and not someone else's. So they come together in these social constructs. And I think part of the problem is when the members of the government get benefits where they don't have to, you know, give, you know, where, whether it be crony capitalism or, you know, uh, giving contracts or making decisions that benefit a politician personally versus their constituents. I think a blockchain oriented decision-making system where consensus rules are part of the system instead of uh, people carrying them out. I think the, like uh, Corey says a lot of times, and I think it was Google's motto, you know, don't be evil. And the, the way I see a good blockchain or a governance system versus people run system is more along the lines of can't be evil because then the system prevents you. And I think that's, I think that's a, a big part of that. And being civil is going to be a, a, a good alignment of incentives for the people who are part of it. See, what do you do for the GPP? How do we get them to understand a system versus a group of people? I think I like when Corey says that. However, it's not realistic. I mean, it's it's not. You can't build a system where people can't be evil. Then what's the point of the game? Like there's no like well, monopoly, so, right? So like, define system, right? It's it's you can take a component of the system and make and and break it down into a piece and make it so that in that piece and it's not so much can't be evil, it's it's not worth the effort to be evil. Just like in Bitcoin with mining, if you try to break the rules, it hurts. It's like nature. You can't go out there and you know get get underwater for 15 minutes. It hurts. You can't touch fire. It hurts. Nature has a direct immediate feedback system for a lot of things and a long-term feedback system for other things. Mm -hmm. Our, the compassion that humans feel sometimes short circuit that feedback that people need, like a narcissist will remain a narcissist if he doesn't get the feedback he needs to understand, Hey, you're doing something wrong. And when you, rob someone of the feedback they need to change, then you get personality disorders. And in our economic system, the feedback doesn't go through and I think is being blocked. And so if we're able to build these smaller systems where feedback is immediate, feedback is natural, just like nature is, then people aren't evil by choice Mm -mm. because it's too hard to be evil or it's costly or it hurts. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like disincentivizing them from being evil. I also, I just think that like the, somebody's always going to try to find a way to game a system. Like it doesn't matter sure, how, but, but it, in order to game a system, you have to have an incentive to just like writers and looters and stealers and people taking advantage of tragedies. If they had an incentive if they weren't poor, 
if they weren't at the bottom of the rung, they probably wouldn't choose to do those things. So it's not them being evil. It's not the system forcing them to be evil. It's the system giving them the incentives to take, you know, the the quote-unquote bad choice versus the quote-unquote good choice because they don't really have a lot of good choices. If you give more good choices, you'll have a better outcome from a lot of people who are able to make choices. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it comes to that specific of giving, making the system, and I'll put that in quotes, making quote unquote, whatever system you're talking about, whether it be an economic system, a job system, whatever, making it so that it's easier to make a good choice mm-hmm. because it'll hurt if you don't. Like transparency. One of the things that happens in Bitcoin is every transaction since the beginning of the first Coinbase in 2009 is available for everyone to see. I have not personally looked at all the transactions that are there, but I know and I believe and I trust in what I've told and researched that I can go look at all those transactions. I can go to the mempool. I can go, I can bring up a node. And the fact that that transparency is there is incentive for anyone who uses it to realize, hey, there's a transparent part of that. And if the votes were the same way, let's say if, you, if you're if you a representative, whether state representative or federal representative, yes, their votes are on record, but nobody goes and looks. And part of the reason nobody goes and looks is that the votes they have are all combined. So it's not like the Bitcoin improvement protocols where we've got a BIP and it says, okay, we're gonna change Bitcoin in this way. And then everyone has to agree to that one change. There's not lobbyists and Congress people going out and say, oh, well, you want this? Well, let's compromise and let's try to let's try to get in a uh, let's build a bridge in my area and get a lot of construction workers and so I can make my voters happy. They're not that's not happening with the kind of Bitcoin improvement protocols that happen. And so I think if we have that kind of thing in our government, I think it'll help. Well, so we're going to go jump into the interview and then we're going to cut back for about 10 minutes after the interview. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a grand theory that I have about the future. And then price. About the future. And then maybe price. Then come back. Price be come back for price. You promised price predictions every week. Price predictions every week. All right. Price is going yeah. to 8,800. No, no. When we come back. Oh, no, no, no. Come back. Come Psych. back. When, when we come back, right. we'll talk about price. This is the interview with Matthew Feinstone, right on the first time with Luke Brink. Here it is. And it's been a while, but we are about to hit you with another one of the Bitcoin podcast interviews. If you never heard one of the Bitcoin podcast interviews, uh, then egg on your face. You should be listening to all of them. Uh, But today we are joined uh, with Matthew Feinstone, the head of business at Loopring. And Loopring is the first implementation of optimistic rollups. These are ZK rollups on a live exchange. So, Matt, I'm not going to talk for you. I would like it if you could introduce yourself to our audience, man. Like, how, who are you? And then how did you connect with crypto? Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. D and uh, the co-host Corey, who's not here, but thank you all. Um, and yeah, let's. I'll have to get back to the to the intro. We'll have to distinguish between 
ZK roll-ups and optimistic roll-ups okay. uh, later. But um, yeah, I'll start with how I got involved. Um, so I come from a, a finance background. Um, I used to work at uh, what's called like a fixed income desk or a fixed income investment bank where we would trade bonds um, and other sorts of fixed income securities, but mostly bonds and mostly government of Canada bonds, uh, provincial bonds and uh, some corporate bonds. But um, yeah, so would work on the sales and trading desk there. I uh, was very into finance back in those days, still am, uh, just different sort of finance these days. Um, I went on to get my uh, my CFA uh, charter and then basically started hearing friends talk about uh, Bitcoin um, and it piqued my curiosity. Kind of the same boring story that you might hear from a lot of people. I heard about it, fell down the rabbit hole, uh, it started consuming me, all that good stuff. Um, for me, it was quite a just a look into a parallel universe. Like here, I am sitting on uh, my trading desk uh, with with the team, which is very fun, and I enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. Uh, but you know, trading bonds, you trade for like half of a basis point uh, sometimes. Like like one one hundredth of a percent is a basis point. You're looking to squeeze out half of that on these like big chunk trades, right? Like kind of like hundreds of millions notional chunk that you try to get a tiny piece off of uh, to facilitate the flow and I was seeing these crazy you know thousands of basis points tens of thousands of base points or just in normal talk just uh, many many percent um, and I said wow this I gotta look at this uh, this kind of parallel universe and parallel asset class and um, started really just reading and reading and I eventually left the desk I started writing for a Canadian crypto exchange called uh, CoinSquare. Um, and writing was a good learning lesson, it kind of distilled all my knowledge and I got you know, paid for, for kind of just learning basically. And that was it, I got more involved in Ethereum specifically 2016, 17, and found my way to Loopring kind of early, very early on. They had just launched, I really liked it. It's a, it has its roots in, in a trading protocol, trading design. So I would ask, I would pester the team, I guess you could say, with questions kind of in like month one or two of their existence. And they said, hey, why don't you just uh, join us? You seem to really uh, enjoy this stuff. So uh, and that's it. Uh, that's how I'm here, D. Man, I like that story. You're right, though. It's like it's it's beginning to be quite a normal story, which to me is amazing because it means we're moving towards quite a normal time or normalcy for crypto in general. You know, I'm just I'm waiting for the story where somebody's like, all right, so I'm in Honduras and I'm scanning Bitcoin QR codes off a lady of the night. And then I'm like, "Okay, this is a story. Yeah. This is what right. I want to hear. No, I'm kidding. That's pretty much everybody's story, man. That's like kind of like my story. I was into math, teaching math, and then Dr. Petty hit me up with some Bitcoin stuff. Um, so fine to come from the traditional world of finance and stepping into Bitcoin and crypto and these shenanigans, what did your peers say? Oh, yeah, that's um, a really good question. Uh so I was kind of the young guy on the desk. Um, everybody was 
I guess on average, at least 10 years my senior or maybe more. And I was leaving and they kind of thought, oh, wow, he's quite stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have as much kind of firepower to kind of answer them back with back in, in 2017. If no, this, you know, I wasn't like I didn't have all the answers to, to kind of uh, counter their assertions. But yeah, maybe I mean, I think they respected it. Like, you know, these guys are like highly educated traditional finance folks they understand that like a younger person may want to seek new fertile ground so i didn't have it too bad from them but i think maybe they were surprised because you know it was it was a it was a good job and people value and kind of associate their identity with kind of working at such a firm or in such a place you know becomes a real part of you so to just kind of walk away is definitely difficult but that speaks to the conviction of uh of you know of the people that do leave these these good jobs they, they they have their eye further out on the horizon so um yeah i didn't have it i didn't have it too bad i guess people maybe gave me the benefit of the doubt okay he 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 must know that there's something going on there um yeah mm. they look back on it now and they're like damn i should listen to matthew well i don't i'm not so sure but like definitely some of the guys i, I still shell them uh bitcoin or or ether um yeah, I, I still I, I keep in touch with them and they're you know, they have it up probably on their on their Bloomberg terminals. They're probably watching BTC and ETH price and, and seeing the kind of worlds converge. Probably there's a whole crypto section on Bloomberg terminals these days. I'm not sure, but it's probably front and center for them. Hey, it's going to get louder. So 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 let's move into loop ring. I, I made a mistake. I made a, I made a faux pas. I said optimistic rollups, RZK rollups, and that's not true. But the first thing we need to do is start with ZK, period. Um, a lot of people listening might know what ZK means. Correct me if I'm wrong. It means zero knowledge. That is right. So what um, what is so important in the world of crypto about these zero knowledge proofs, these zero knowledge rollups? What is it building the infrastructure for, for the end user? Okay, right. So remind me to come back to the optimistic side and the I distinction. Will, will. Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, ZK, uh, zero knowledge, some people usually zero knowledge proofs, um, zero knowledge cryptography. It's a branch of cryptography or like a discipline that has been around uh, since the 80s, to my knowledge, um, and isn't, you know, wasn't birthed by blockchain or it's not, you know, completely dependent on it. Um, it's actually a tool set that blockchain is using, uh, blockchains, a certain implementations are, are using uh, for two main purposes. The big one and the one that kind of makes more sense given the name is for privacy preservation um so zero knowledge and i explain it in the quite dumbed down way right I'm, I'm the business guy with like 19 engineers on the team but some people sometimes tell me that i have a, a decent way of explaining it um so so hopefully people um find it useful but um zero knowledge usually so in the privacy preservation way and the most notable um use that the most notable team or, or coin that uses it is a uh, zcash Right, they use zero knowledge to preserve privacy um, for Zcash users and the Zcash blockchain. It allows a sender to send something to a recipient, both of them being obfuscated, 
Um, so you don't know who, who is the sender, who's the recipient, as well as the amount. You don't, I don't know if I sent you one uh, Zcash coin or four or 0.5, it obfuscates all that. So it does that by, I mean, I'm not a Zcash expert, so I don't wanna actually go into the exact implementation, but the ZK, it allows a prover, uh, a person uh, or a system to assert something, some fact, to a validator or a verifier, but without giving them the complete information or some piece of the information, or you know, basically it allows to prove something in zero knowledge. Uh, it, it proves something without me kind of opening up my hand and pulling back the curtain and saying, you see, here's that info I was telling you about. It's more like I tell you something and I do some fancy some people call it alien math. That's a kind of meme. I do some fancy alien math computation besides this assertion or statement that I say, and I just submit to you this little proof, this computation that kind of came out the black box and says, yep, like whatever you were trying to prove in that black box, it's true because this proof exists. So by the powers of math, um, this proof, this validity proof uh, wouldn't exist uh if i was incorrect if i was trying to yeah. cheat with the vendor with the, all that so so let me take a pause there that's the privacy preservation use of of zero knowledge is kind of d computing something without divulging all or some of the info um yeah sorry i'm, I'm pausing to kind of let okay that's, that's one yeah that's good that's i good. if do you mind if I try to summarize kind of like what you said is the way I feel it is, is like it's intense logic, uh, logic on the next level. And, you know, there's very simple logic gates, but some logic gates exist. And you can know if somebody made it to that point in the logic gates, then they obviously they took an obvious path. There's the only right. one way they could get there. So if they provide you with just being there, then it's like, OK, well, that is the only one way you could have got here. And that's by taking that path. You don't need to know if they took the path. You set up the logic gates as such. You know that they took the path because they're there. They exist there. So that's kind of one. That's how I've always looked at it. I've never looked like you said, I never looked into Zcash intensely, but that's how I've always tried to understand it. So maybe right. maybe maybe by both of our definitions, we've connected with, you know, our listeners that might not be familiar with ZK zero knowledge proofs. But right. how do we spin that? How is it different? than optimistic. Okay, so so first of all, really well said on your part with, with the gates and uh, that's exactly right. Now, for what we just said, that's all interesting, but that is not why we use zero knowledge cryptography. Besides having these neat privacy preserving properties, you could also use it for scalability. And that is what Loopring uses it for. So just as a, I can't believe we're this far in, into the into the into our my little monologue here without saying it, but Loopring started as a decentralized exchange protocol. We use zero knowledge proofs for scalability to make things go faster, cheaper, higher throughput without sacrificing like the base layer security guarantees, Ethereum in our case. But so everything you just said about the about those gates, how you summarized it nicely, we basically take a whole bunch of things, computations to do in our system, in our protocol. We put them off chain and we run them through the same circuit or logic gates, but we're not trying to come out with a proof uh, for the sake of privacy preservation. We're trying to come out with a proof 
for the sake of succinctness or compression. So we take, to be specific, let's call it our biggest batch of kind of actions we could take, actions being kind of like trade requests in, a, in an exchanges uh, context. We take 4,000 of those things, and instead of doing them on chain, like the kind of naive decks, and I don't mean naive in a bad way, but younger, you know, let's build a decks on Ethereum. Okay, we're gonna do that on the smart contracts. That's the old way. We are the first, uh, the first way that says, let's take all that stuff, put it off chain, compute it in these zero knowledge circuits. So again, this heavy computation being done off chain, and we're gonna get, again, a, a thumbprint, uh, a, a little spit out output of, the, of these circuits that says, yep, everything that the protocol, which is open source, says that it will do, match a trade, apply fees, not steal money, not cheat, all that stuff, all the rules, if the proof comes out, then it basically is what I like to call these days like a thumbprint of the veracity or the validity of the computations. So I took 4,000 things that would have been expensive to do on chain. I did them off chain just on like compute power. I spit out a small thumbprint that says everything that happened in there is true or I wouldn't be here. And we submit that proof onto Ethereum. Um, and that is how we scale by a factor of a thousand without compromising any Ethereum level security guarantees. You don't need to trust us. We could turn malicious, we could run away, we could be leaned on by governments. As long as Ethereum exists, um, it could harken back to the last proven checkpoint there and says, yep, that was the state of the off-chain world. Let me, let a user reclaim my balances. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there again and maybe you could, uh, you could give another better distillation than myself, but is that clear? No, I mean, I think that was re actually really clear. I think, you know, basically the play is to do most of the computation off chain, but you're submitting these these states to the Ethereum chain in order to provide to provide, you know, um, I, what a way I look at it is kind of like a hook. You're hooking into the Ethereum chain just to show the validity of the states as they go on. Um, and that's that's the most tried and true scalability um, technique that I've seen since scalability became an all-out drag-out war in the crypto world um and most most people most projects are doing everything off chain but the fact that you can prove that the stuff happened right so then the next obvious hurdle is the naysayers that say oh it's off chain how can you trust it how can you trust it and that's that's kind of a marketing thing right you gotta get kind of get them to understand, but not fully optimistic rollups. Like, how do you? <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So ZK rollups again, we're going to get to the optimistic one in a second, but I like okay. how you keep bringing that up, but you're, you know what? So you're absolutely right. That uh, doing a lot of things off chain is the way to scale. But in my, my, you know, to your listenership and to yourself, this will sound biased, but ZK rollups are, or require the least explanation where I say, yeah, we're, we're doing things off chain, but like these validators are trusted and, and this assumption that it's like, no, if you looked at our design doc or, you know, an, an engineer, somebody curious looked at it, you'd understand that we introduced no extra security assumptions because that's what a, a roll up is. So we kind of just described the ZK part of it. And ZK is kind of a misnomer to call it a ZK roll up. It kind of a lot of people think we're doing private things, but no, again, we use the ZK just for like the succinctness and the compression. Um, the roll up, what a roll up means is 
it's like some actor, an aggregator is rolling up a bunch of transactions off chain. Like they're, you know, they're, they're an aggregator, they're batching them. And that's when they put it through like the proof machine. And, that, and that's where scalability comes from is the fact that you're doing, you're kind of amortizing like a fixed cost over 4,000 trades. That's why all those 4,000 trades are, are becoming very cheap. But the, the roll up part of, of the term comes from the fact that you have to put a little bit of extra data. Okay, so to rewind one second, what we're putting on chain is the Merkle root. So kind of the one stamp that said, that summarizes all the Merkle leafs, which is the state of an exchange, right? So account mm -hmm. ID 1452 has this many ETH and die and blah, blah, blah. It all trickles up to the root which is, you know, just this hash or, or right, it, it summarizes everything beneath it. We submit the new Merk Merkle root to Ethereum plus the ZK snark proof, our zero knowledge proof that says this Merkle truth, uh, this Merkle proof was kind of the state transition in a faithful way. That's why this proof exists. But the roll up comes into it because we actually put on a little bit of extra data, which addresses your question of, okay, this is a, like a, a different off-chain thing or it's a side-chain. We put just this extra data, which is technically speaking, just the deltas in between each of these requests, in between each of these transactions, the deltas in between the Merkle leaves, we put that on-chain as well, which kind of makes our load a bit heavier. Like ideally we want to put as little as possible on Ethereum, but because we put those state transitions, uh, the, 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 those those deltas, which to be exact, cost like 365 gas per. So it is an incremental cost, not just one fixed overhead cost uh, to submit the Merkle root plus the proof, which is like 250,000 gas for those uh, keeping track at home. That's where you get the scalability, 250,000 gas divided by 4,000 trades. That's why it's so cheap. But this little incremental data is what makes us be able to say no we are like we are as secure as ethereum because if we ran away turned malicious whatever got regulated into oblivion if as long as ethereum exists there is enough information in that call data in the transaction data to allow anybody to reconstruct the merkle tree to the state that it just was in before everything went uh you know everything went uh wrong let's say or so so some so you know layer 2 scalability is like the the hot term our chief architect likes to use the term, or maybe it's not him that coined it, but like we are actually layer 1.5 because we're so tightly coupled to Ethereum and you need not introduce another set of validators, another set of some t economic uh, game theory. There's nothing else. Just if Ethereum exists, a user could get their money back. So that's why I, I get kind of slightly defensive if someone says, okay, so you're like a side chain, like these other layer twos. It's like, yes, but we are the most secure one with everything just coming mm -hmm. back to ethereum no extra assumptions needed so so sorry that that is my that is my uh don't uh, apologize cool. man i like the passion i like the passion so so it's almost like you fractaled ethereum time that's what it feels like in my head if i could oh, like yeah. throw some kind of like ten thousand mile high definition of what's going on so if we are measuring that delta and that affects the even smaller fractals that go into, you know, how many transactions are going on in the decentralized exchange. How big is the delta before it becomes troublesome? Right. Okay. So that's, I really like the way you say that, that you fractal uh, it. Um, the delta does not, so th that number I said, like 4,096 is indeed our biggest batch. I'm not so sure that's what you're alluding to here, but, oh, maybe the, I mean, 
yeah, the delta. There's no well, real constraint about like how big the delta gets. Like if you're going from like one die to a hundred die, there's no difference for like the circuit's point of view. Um, it, there's there's no there's no difference oh, about like actually what's happening. I think um, I made an unsafe assumption. I assume the delta is the time difference between when you're uh, putting the Merkle root on the Ethereum blockchain, but that's not the oh. delta. Okay, no, the delta is literally just for uh, not time based necessarily. Just uh, okay, I, I put the Merkle root plus the proof on four minutes ago, and now I'm putting a new one on chain right now. Um, actually, time is not such like a mandated component. Really, the roller upper, the aggregator, it they are optimizing to kind of get the biggest amount of stuff in their batch because it's going to cost them like a fixed overhead cost to run the computation to generate the proof so if i'm like if it's been like four minutes and like one trade happened on the exchange and i'm the operator i'm like the back end system that is handling this merkle tree and generating the proof i really want to wait like another five minutes to try to get like 10 more transactions in because it's going to cost me the same whether i do just your trade d or if i get like you know 1000 more people or 10 more people i'm much more happy to like kind of split the cost you know sometimes i say it's like we're renting a bus to like take a trip back to ethereum and like i don't want to be the only person on the bus i want like you know 100 people because like i want to you know get there cheaper got it got it okay um yes. all right so this is i mean it's decentralized exchanges for those of you that don't know it's also commonly referred to as a dex um what that allows is just simply put I could trade with Matthew from my wallet to his. That's what decentralized exchanges do. And that's, you know, if you take a minute to think about that, that's very, very powerful. But throughput. Throughput is the biggest hurdle for decentralized exchanges. And loopering seems to have solved that swimmingly. Well, what have been some of loopering's hurdles in solving that swimmingly? Right. Um so, I mean, the hurdles is first of all, like our whole existence is kind of going from, you know, maybe jumping over one hurdle to the next, not in any necessarily dire way, but we started, a, you know, we didn't think of ZK rollups three years ago when we launched. We were just like a normal DEX protocol. We always wanted to be as scalable as possible, but it just, it's very hard to get to reach a high throughput while maintaining Ethereum security guarantees a year and a half into our existence, which is also a year and a half past, uh, because we've been around for, for three years now, um, we, we looked to ZK rollups as the leading scaling solution. It didn't exist. It was just an idea kind of from like Vitalik wrote research papers about it and other um, Ethereum researchers, like this guy, Barry Whitehat, and uh, many research. And we just are the first to implement it. Like we've been live. The Loopring protocol has been live since uh, December 2019 on Ethereum mainnet. We built our own product on top of it called Loopring Exchange, that lives at, at loopring.io. Uh, so we kind of moved from being strictly protocol people to uh, owning a product atop it. But um, I mean, the hurdles is that, you know, for the past three years, we were heads down, heavy research and engineering team. And only now are we kind of, you know, if I dare say getting, you know, slightly popular or known, or, you know, uh, maybe that's the reason I'm even on here talking to you. Uh, before all this ZK magic, we weren't uh, we weren't as uh, interesting, <laughs> but um, yeah. So so look, we're, we're live. We're, it, it's it's almost I, I don't want to sound like that, but it's somewhat 
uh, like amusing when people say Ethereum doesn't scale, Ethereum won't scale. And I say like, it does scale right now. It's not pervasive yet. You still have high gas and congestion, but like here I am, you know, our team has implemented something that we could go. So to get to the nut of, of the question, we could go to 2,100 trades per second right now. So 2,100 trades per second from our legacy versions, like Loopring version one and two, which were pre-ZK, uh, ZK is version three, uh, did two trades per second. Jesus. Um, so 1,000x with, again, like a, I don't want to sound like a, like a parrot here, but without sacrifice, it'd be easy for us to scale by saying, oh yeah, but like you have to trust us, or like us plus five other people, we like, you know, maintain. No, this is all you have to trust is Ethereum. If Ethereum exists tomorrow, you get your money back, but you can still do 2100 TPS, and correspondingly, like the, the, the flip side of high throughput is low cost. Um, our, our lowest cost, like our, if we kind of fill up that bus as big as possible and like our prover, like all the optimizations that, that are live, we could settle one trade for uh, $0.000124 or a million trades for $124 is what we could settle. That's an Ooh. all in cost. Um, that's 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 some good numbers, man. That's that's a hell of a milestone. What's the next milestone? So twenty one hundred transactions per second. If I know you, being business minded, because I too am with my Bruce Wayne gig, I consider the podcast my Bat Wayne gig, and my real life gig. I'm business minded. What's the next milestone after twenty one hundred? Because there's always a next milestone. You don't just score one touchdown. I mean, who would who would score one touchdown? Right. <laughs> Okay, so maybe I need to uh, uh, ask you some some business-minded uh, question after this, or feel free to just yeah, say man, it we can talk offline or shit. Yeah. We'll say here, we're kicking it. Um, but yeah, so the business milestone here is actually not so much an increase in throughput. Like, we have an amazing technical team. Let me say that of them, uh, like. They are, we have so many optimizations in the pipeline. Like one small thing, okay, like right now, loopring.io lives on version 3.1. Version 3.1 can only have a Merkle tree with 1 million accounts, let's say. So if we got popular enough that a million people opened up kind of a slot in our Merkle tree or like in, you know, on the exchange, um, then a million is it. Like we can't fit more. You know, version 3.5, we improve that the size of the Merkle tree. So 16.6 million accounts could come on. So there's things like that. We could go faster. We could go cheaper. There's all these optimizations, but on the business front, something that we have found success in literally in the past eight days is we extend. So for our whole life, we've been like the, the DEX protocol people. And then the past you know year and a half, the scalable DEX people, uh, you know, trying to get, trying to go fast and cheap. Now, like 10 days ago, and what started kind of like a month prior, we said, hey, let's extend the protocol's functionality to not just support trading, like kind of fast-paced, high-frequency professional-style trading, but just simple transfers, uh, payments, like a simple, you know, ETH, you know, me sending you ETH or, or 100 DAI. Let's just support that. And we did. We launched Loopring Pay uh, like eight or nine days ago. And that, coincidentally, is what caused the biggest ruckus uh, in the Ethereum community and like the adjacent communities saying, wow, now I could send payments on Ethereum instantly and for free. 
and like with a bit of an asterisk between both of those words, like it's free because it's so cheap to us that we're subsidizing it for users. Like nothing is free, right? At the end of the day, everything settles to Ethereum where we pay yeah. gas. But I just told you it costs $124 to settle a million trades. You could kind of think of a transfer as like half a trade. It's like me sending you 100 die and not asking for something in return. So that's kind of like half of the space of a trade. So we could settle 1 million transfers for $60. Um, so we implemented that. So on loopring.io, which kind of like looks like an order book exchange, just happens to live on Ethereum. Um, we now have this like transfer ability where people can just go on and send at the click of a button any like an, an ERC20 or ETH token to anybody else who is on the ZK rollup. So we call that loopring pay. And that honestly was so well received. Um, it's like pe people are loving loopring pay. They're like running away with that more so than like loopring exchange. So uh, to your mind, uh, it's just so funny. Like we're doing something for three years. We like sidestep for like, you know, two weeks and like launch like a payment functionality. And that was like actually what captured everybody's interest. That's awesome, man. That's really awesome. How do you, okay. So then my, my question is what happens when it get when Ethereum becomes so valuable that you can no longer afford to subsidize people's payments? Yeah, uh, fair point. I mean, the answer then is we're still a thousand times cheaper, just not free. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. I was hoping, yeah, that come back. Okay, man. It sounds like you yeah. guys did something really awesome there, especially the the scalability, right? Um, you know that that when someone solves that or has seemingly solved it, um, I don't know. I guess I've been in crypto long enough to where it's like mainly it's. I don't want to say this in a negative way, but most things kick the can down the road. What I mean by that is like um, everybody talks about decentralized mining. Well, mining can never be 1000 percent as decentralized as we want it. It just won't. There's always going to be somebody who makes a damn ASIC. And then that takes off and then it starts to get into these big chunks where like 18 to 20 percent is one mining pool and like. I don't know, 17, 13 to 17% is another. There's just these really big chunks of mining pools after ASICs are created. And everyone says, oh, it's ASIC proof. But all ASIC proof does is make your chain a pain in the ass to work with. Uh, so um, that's just from my experience. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. But Ethereum was ASIC resistant. Um, and now ASICs have come. And, you know, Ethereum is trying all kinds of things to, to do away with that. But to have such a, a good re, rebuttal to what happens when Ethereum gets takes us all to the moon and we all have moon boots, it's just, hey, even though this stuff is expensive, it's thousand less times expensive than the other guy. So that's awesome. Um, I'm trying to think of any other questions that I could possibly have, man. I think you knock them all out of the ball out of the ballpark. Um, I don't know about that, but here, I'll, let me just tell you something, because that's a really good point about, you know, kicking things down the road and how decentralized could something truly be. Let me kind of sh shoot one of my toes off here is there are components of Loopring, which are not completely right now decentralized. And that is the kind of what I mentioned, the aggregator roller upper of the transaction. So we call that like the operator or the relayer. Um, so Loopring is an open source protocol, just a bunch of smart contracts and zero knowledge circuits that are open. Anybody could use them to build an exchange and now to build like a payment application. 
um, on Ethereum, but going you know higher throughput and cheaper. However, the whole beauty of the system is that the heavy lifting is done off chain, right? Like literally everything is done off chain. Who is doing that is this operator or relayer um, you know, entity. And we have built our own system to handle this. It's kind of like a beast of a system, uh, software and or hardware, like you could run it in the cloud or, or on your specialized hardware. But we are the ones that are waiting for the, those 4,000 transactions to be like sent to us. Then we batch them, prove them in this you know, fancy alien math thing and submit that to Ethereum. Now, there are problems with what we could do. We, let me tell you what we could do right now, like against decentralization, like against the, this ethos is if we don't like your trade, because literally we don't like, we don't do KYC or anything. All you need is an Ethereum address to kind of enter the ZK rollup. You basically make a transaction that puts, you know, um, Dimitrik.eth, uh, that maps it to account ID 1662 in the Merkle tree, let's say. But if we don't like 1662 for some reason, we could censor your trades and not put them in that block. Uh, and we'll keep on going on and just, we don't like your trades. So that's something we could uh, we could do the the truth is our protocol already solves for it the protocol allows multiple operators to serve one dex you need not be served by one monolithic thing like right now the loop ring relayer services the loop ring exchange built on the loop ring protocol but it could be the dimitric exchange built on the loop ring protocol you don't have to ask our permission serviced by you know the cori relayer and you guys are in business together. You're like a good front end guy, business guy, acquiring users. And he's like a good computer guy uh, processing and proving these transactions. Um, it could be Corey plus somebody else proving those transactions. And that is where you get more censorship resistance. Because like if, you know, if the loop ring relayer doesn't process your transaction, then the next guy in like, you know, three minutes will include your transaction because he probably doesn't hate you, let's say. So, so here you see like the reason, the reason let me just wrap up by saying like the reason we don't currently implement a multi-operator model is because quite simply, we are trying to solve the bigger problems first about centralized exchanges, which is just custody and that your assets are there and are not being siphoned as we speak, right? Loopring is basically like Coinbase Pro or Kraken or Binance, except its hands are tied and it cannot meddle with your funds it cannot it cannot be hacked it cannot steal your funds but everything else kind of like you know binance could censor your trade if you don't like it like from your email when you make a trade they could be like oh we forgot to settle that one so we are first chewing off the big problem of hey let's make sure your assets are there and you're not getting robbed blind your assets are always there as long as ethereum's there could could we censor a trade that's possible right now but hey you know what you could do you could exit we can never freeze your money. You leave with your funds. You say, this guy sucks. He's censoring my trade. And you have the, the, you know, you have the opportunity to exit. Will we implement multiple operators? Uh, sure. But to be honest, nobody is like, is really crying at us right now saying, Hey, uh, distribute your order book and make more people allowed to submit my blocks. They're just very happy that their funds are safe as long as Ethereum exists. So we're kind of chewing off the, the bigger problem. But as you see, like, it's not a, a, a full. It's not a full solution uh, just yet. Are there incentives for people to to be an operator? Um, there's normal business incentives in the sense that 
Corey could charge you, the owner of uh, D's Exchange, um, he could charge you 20% of all the fees that you're charging. He wants those fees. Like you have kind of like an offline normal agreement. Um, maybe you're paying him 10,000, maybe you're paying him X thousand dollars a month retainer fee plus, you know, 20 mm. or 50% of all your training fees. Cause that's your, that's your business. You could literally spin up these exchange tonight. If you had, you just call the function on Ethereum that spins you up kind of like your own child contract where you specify which tokens, stuff like that. You plug in your own backend operator, whether to be clear, you could also build your own D's operator, but it's going to take you six months and like several million dollars of research maybe to kind of build like a heavy duty optimized one. That's why we offer loop ring relayer as a service for a would be DEX owner to kind of spin up tonight instead of next year if they wanted to build their own. Mm. That's uh, that, while we were having this conversation, I had this like intense, uh, like kind of thought of like this whole sub layer uh, on the Ethereum network of decentralized exchanges where like at a moment's notice, any wallet could trade with any wallet. Cause like just that's how uh, prolific, I guess, decentralized exchanges became, but um, right. okay. So, I think one, the payment protocol that you guys have whipped up is amazing, especially if it's that quick. I haven't seen a lot of protocols that can can compete there, quite honestly. So um, I don't know. Do, do you think there's anything I should have asked you that I didn't? I feel like I'm leaving something out. I hate that gut feeling, but I think we've covered um. most bases. No, I, I think you asked great questions and even helped me with some explanations. And um, by the way, you're you're on you're right about like the whole loop ring pay thing. We are going to devote some more resources to it. Like right now, if there's any uh, front end developers or designers listening, we kind of we open source loopring.io, which is kind of like the exchange front end, and that has kind of loop ring pay like you know jammed in as an afterthought. It's like you're on an exchange, and oh, I could also send a lightning fast payment. We, we made um, we made a bounty on Gitcoin for somebody to make a specific loopring pay UI. So it doesn't seem like an afterthought on an exchange functionality, but a specific loopring pay UI. So if anybody is interested there, you can go to Gitcoin.co and kind of maybe shape uh, the, the future of, uh, of how payments look on Ethereum. But let me actually tell you one other thing here about, uh, first of all, I'd love for you to check out loopring.io after this, get on the ZK rollup. And then play with the payments. You need a friend on there because it's like any other network where you need to send to somebody. That's what's kind of annoying now. Like you need to send to me, like you know, uh, you know, my Ethereum address, which is registered on the rollup for it to, to for it to be kind of so fast and, and so cheap. But yeah, let me just I'll shoot off one other toe here by saying we use the we use the marketing terms of instant and free which from your point of view, it is. It's free because I told you it's literally 0. $0.00006 so we could subsidize it. Instant, when you click a button, you're gonna see it get processed. You have to sign something from like your MetaMask or whatever wallet. It's not an on-chain transaction. You're not paying gas. You're just giving your cryptographic signature. It's actually a different signature that's roll up friendly and you're signing it. And that's, it's, it, it's what we call apparent instant finality. You're clicking it and it happens, but as, you now know behind the scenes the relayer has received your request so it's like it's up to you it has processed it but 
the relayer has to wait for uh, you know, the next 10, 20, 100 transactions to get into its batch so it could start proving it. So is it possible that once you click it and it's instant, that 40 seconds later, like you find out that the relayer just like went out of business, never submitted the next block, just said, peace out, I'm gone? Yes, it is not instant finality. Nothing ultimately could get past the Ethereum cadence of finality. But you have a kind of first finality before the eventual ZK snark is submitted on chain. You have this kind of like quick, lower assurance finality. Yep, it's processed, it's in the batch. But let me tell you truthfully, it's possible. It's unlikely because, you know, we're a going concern and we want to exist and, you know, be there tomorrow. But it's possible that the relayer says, okay, guys, I'm out. And all these things that are pending, it's just like we're, those don't get processed. So it's, so I say instant and free because it's true and there's no like, trickery going on here but yeah like you know some sticklers but i don't mean stickler in a bad way they're just they're really technical people they say well it's not free you're subsidizing it and it's not instant you're waiting like in a kind of mini mempool to be able to generate a proof to submit to ethereum so those are true so here i am kind of painting the counter case against loopering and, and what could happen but i still find it so so compelling that you could now basically trade at the high performance or transfer payments at the high performance of a completely centralized, you know, entity, but with the, as your assets will never be there. To be clear, if that in the payment case, if I say, oh, four seconds later, what you thought sent to your buddy is not there, you're like, damn, that's annoying. I hate this business, but at least my assets are still there. Like you, you, you exit the system. You always have your freedom to exit. So, so I think that paints the comprehensive, even counter uh, position to, to what we're building here. But uh, yeah. I like how you leave people no room to counter anything. You're like, I'll counter myself. What are you, what are you going to say now? Ha. Ah. Yeah. So I guess we'll leave you with our trademark question. In, in, in 10 words or less, can you describe uh, Bitcoin? Er, nope. Ethereum. Open, permissionless, parallel, financial and property system. It's a terrible sentence, but that's seven. Oh, so oh you I, wanted to throw in more words. You have three words left. Oh, oh man. So open permissionless parallel financial. I don't know. Maybe no, I want to save those three words for another time. That's, that's <laughs> so when you come back on here in three months, when all of a sudden, loopering pay has exploded and it's mooning. Uh, we'll talk about those last three words. Sound like a deal? That sounds like a deal. Let me tell you, though, um, the I don't want to extend this, but I realize we didn't get to the difference of what an optimistic roll up. Oh, shit. That's right. <laughs> we never got back to it. Oh, let's, well, let's do it right now. Well, the difference between a ZK roll up and an optimistic roll up. Okay. Yeah. It's quite interesting. And I think I have a, 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 like an approachable answer to it, but so we know what ZK is. You have this operator and he's batching a bunch of things and then he proves its validity by this magic math. And that's what he's submitting with the new state of, of the off-chain world. He, he accompanies it with a validity proof. An optimistic rollup is like that. They batch a bunch of things off-chain and they submit like a new state of the world, except they didn't go through the trouble of putting this jumble of rolled up stuff through this proving machine to generate a validity proof. 
instead they're optimistic. They're like happy-go-lucky, more trusting types of people or system. And they put the new state of the world, like the new Merkel root on chain and says, okay, this is true. Here's the new state. And now it's up to a network of like watchers or like, you know, you know, people, guards that say, wait, that is not a true new state of the world. I see you messed with transaction number, whatever, X, because look, so basically you are more trusting. You don't submit your new state of the world with a validity proof. You actually submit it and are optimistic that, that the relayer acted appropriately. And then this other network of watchers has to submit a fraud proof. So it's kind of after the fact submitting a fraud proof if anything goes wrong versus ZK rollup submitting uh, proactively a validity proof to not able something, not be allow something to go wrong. So, so that's it at a very high level. Mm, okay. I'm glad we provided yeah. some clarity there and didn't leave everyone hanging. We should have just left them hanging on purpose. So we should have like, they never got to it. Like, yeah, tune yeah. in for the next episode, like a fucking Dragon Ball Z. Anyways, um, thank you for clearing that up, Mr. Feinstone, and and thank you for swinging by the Bitcoin podcast. Um, show definitely wasn't about Bitcoin uh, today. The interview was definitely not about Bitcoin, um, but uh, sorry, it's funny. A lot of people nowadays, some of the feedback we get is like, it's like you guys never even talk about Bitcoin anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess those are the breaks. So anyways. Um, thank you for swinging by. Um, very looking forward to the success of Loopering. Um, the successes, the successes of DEXs in general are paramount to the longevity of crypto in my, in my opinion. So, um, thanks man. Mine too. And, and thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, that was the interview with Matthew Feinstone, Loopring. Um, they accidentally stumbled upon scaling Ethereum, and it's really popular. And they can do about, I think he said, 12,500 transactions per second, and people are really stoked about it. But they're actually a decentralized exchange, and you should check that out. So I want to talk about something interesting. So to go back to the beginning of the episode, Lebanon, it's on fire right now. People are losing their shit. They wake up. They, they thought they had $100,000. They wake up. They only have $25,000. Like, what happened? Like, oh, the government just totally made our money useless overnight. It's crazy. And so I have this theory. And it, it was generated through conversations I had with a longtime friend uh, who's an incredibly smart dude, scientist, but ha- wants nothing to do with Bitcoin. Says he's got bigger things, uh, bigger fish to fry. And I said, okay. And he said, I, I, at first glance, this is what he told me. He said, at first glance, Bitcoin is amazing, groundbreaking, innovative, and definitely going to be adopted. But it's never going to surmount the human aspect of things. And hmm. his theory that he said between uh, me and him came up is that we have a theory that Bitcoin is going to be the money of the third world. And then some crazy layered combination of blockchain stable currencies and financial tools out the wazoo uh, leveraging cryptocurrency is going to be the money of the first world quote unquote 
And I think they're trying to put bold lines in the sand. Right. We have China who is releasing the digital yuan, yuan, yuan. I don't know how to say that word. Uh, really soon, like this year, um, there's like four dollar stable coins. Um, maybe there's a hundred, but there's 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 a there's a tiny majority. Yeah, I mean a, a tiny a tiny minority that that take over ninety five percent of the the volume the, the volume. Yeah, yeah. There's you know so there's already you know with the flip of a switch and some conversations behind doors there could be a a, a crypto dollar <clears throat> like it, it could be like tomorrow if they were just like yeah USDT and USDC plus this all come together with some index and that index plus is Libra. Brand- Plus Libra is the brand new shiny crypto dollar. And they could do that literally in two weeks if they probably wanted to. They've probably um, been working on it and we've seen it in bills that have been proposed over the last oh, year where yeah. it was just, it was hidden and then it was removed and it was for proposed. And we've talked about that before where mm-hmm. the, the government would make it, could make it really easy on the populace to say, Oh, that's not going to be so bad. Trade in your Bitcoin for some of this new stuff at some accelerated rate. There's a universal basic income that it'll give everybody. You get a 50% discount on your taxes if you pay with this coin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things they could do to to make it so that anybody against it, all of a sudden we're going against their pocketbook. And that's mm-hmm. how you get them. And, and I think that's going to be, I think Bitcoin can't surmount the human aspect of things. And for no reason other than, to be different, though, quote unquote, Western world or the first world or whatever I was raised on all that nonsense is going to say like, oh, we don't deal in Bitcoin. That's that other currency. Meanwhile, other third world currencies are just scrambling for something because they can wake up overnight. Like in Brazil, the currency's shit. In Venezuela, the currency is shit. Uh, in Lebanon now. In Africa, every other month, there's some country that's like, yeah, we couldn't figure it out. Uh, all this paper is just paper now. Huh. Zimbabwe, you know, I think. Happened Zimbabwe. Um, you know, it, it just happens so frequently that I think those countries are going to say, you know what? We don't need to worry about like monetary supply, all that nonsense. We're obviously not good at it. This is what we're going to do. We're going to use Bitcoin. Cool. I mean, some African yeah, countries are and set it gets up them- for it. It gets them out of the sanctions too. Gets them out of the sanctions. You know, we're just going to use Bitcoin. So be it, whatever. A lot of, I mean, there's two or three African countries that are really set up for it because they already use M-Pesa. So they've been using digital currency since, I don't know, the late nineties, I think. No, 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 no. Early two thousands. And they're used to it. In fact, Bitcoin would be a major upgrade to them, you know? So it's, I like the theory and it makes sense to me. And if there's a, you know, a crypto dollar, then you can track the amount of dollars that are interacting with cryptocurrency because of smart contracts, right? So, right. Just you can imagine the marketing now. They'll, they'll call it first world dollar, and they say, "Do you want first world dollar or do you want Bitcoin?" Exactly. I think yeah. I, I think that's the way things are naturally going. You know, you see, a bank in Japan is being custo- having custodial services for. I think Nomura is the name of the bank custodial services for crypto. So, you know, it's going to be no different than having uh, a bunch of francs in your bank accounts or some dollars 
You know, like they're just going to finagle that and finesse it. You know, Bitcoin's been around for 10 years. They're going to say, hey, remember that crazy Bitcoin stuff? Well, it's not so crazy. It's currency. It's like foreign currency. You know, it's just I can see it coming now. But anyways. Well, with uh, so with that, so let's say. You know, the let's say there are plans to to roll a one world government or a, a new world reserve currency coin mm-hmm. and you know they they do that and they they combine libra and the stable coins and they buy up tether and they say hey we'll drop the lawsuit against ifinex or whatever whoever it is they were the new york attorney blah 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 and they roll out a crypto dollar and we already know from the leak from john bolton's upcoming book that you know trump specifically was saying you know, we got to quash this Bitcoin thing, whatever, whatever the real words were. But, you know, it was kind of the thing behind the tweets and, you know, wouldn't put in pa- wouldn't put it past our current climate with COVID, the unrest that's everywhere, the increased militarization of our cops and the election that's going to be coming up where people are still trying to figure out what's going on, that they didn't that they don't also roll out something like that and they outlaw other forms of currency, just like in the thirties and the seventies, the, the, what happened with gold. So that it doesn't seem as fantastic of a idea as it, as it would have even two years ago, it would have been a complete conspiracy theory two years ago. And now it's like, Oh, well, I can maybe see that happening. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let me ask you. Yeah. What so like an ETF, exchange traded fund? Exchange traded fund. Right. This is where you don't own the thing, but you own something that owns something else, and you get shares in that, and so you participate in the ups and downs of the of the thing without having to own the thing. Like there's a gold ETF. You don't have to buy gold. You can buy into gold by getting a gold ETF. You can get a just precious metals ETF. You can get a cybersecurity ETF. And it's ways to to ride waves. So there's been a number of attempts at getting a crypto ETF that have been shot down several times. And so the two things I wanted to ask is one, what do you think an ETF would do to Bitcoin? You know, if there were a Bitcoin ETF, a proper one, not the ETPs or the ETNs that we have now, both good and bad. And then secondly, how would an ETF affect your theory? Mm. So first, let's do good. Well, brainstorming is always be good, 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 no bad. What would be good about ETF? I think what would be good about ETF is the, I think it would be a volume increase on on for Bitcoin. Um, I think it would be liquidity for old money to move into Bitcoin and be quote unquote less risky. So that 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 perception of less risks would result in very, very high volume for Bitcoin and high volume with high volume with sustained high volume alludes to sustainability and increased uh, price over time and lower volatility. So yes. I think I think volatility is important. 
Um, and lower volatility means people can keep faith in things because the plans that they make uh, are going to come to fruition. And it's not like you make a plan on day zero and then by day, I don't know, 1,500 of your plan, uh, all of a sudden the values of things have changed so astronomically. Um, your plan is just, you might as well have not had one to begin with. So I think volatility comes down. I think volume goes up. I think more, I think price goes up, but nowhere near as fast as it used to. I don't think it's going to moonshot. Um, and then I think Bitcoin gets a very, very, very hard stamp of approval as a legitimate asset. The first of its kind a digital asset class that, uh, is now included on companies' balance sheets, families' balance sheets, uh, right. and it's in there. So, would, so it sounds like you would say it would raise and then stabilize the price. Yes, due to interest and and volume and liquidity. I think it also would make it harder to take away. It, it would it it and I'll, I'll I'll contrast this when we get to the bad side, but. But in general, an ETF just makes me feel like, okay, we've made it. They're not going to outlaw it now because now everybody's in it. And it's got all the FDIC stuff and the insurance and it's got the regulatory oversight and it's and it has to go through all the bureaucracy and and there's going to be so many people in it, it'll be harder to take away. And that seems to me to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. I also think it reduces pressure on scaling because an ETF doesn't need to settle like a retail transaction. Sure does. They they're used to T2, T3 and and Swift and long-term settlement anyway. There's no problem for an ETF batching every day or two and then then doing whatever they need to do so they can do a really low transaction fee transaction plus it'll be very high value. You know, in the dozens or hundreds of thousands of bitcoin you know, with the millions of dollars and who cares? I mean, as long as they've got the oversight. So I think that would reduce pressure on the scaling for the amount of money going through it. And that helps the liquidity and stability. You see what I mean? Yes, I do. And I agree. Um, I agree a bajillion percent. No, that's a lot, but I, I do agree. Um, I don't think do you it's agree to be... eight decimal places. I agree to eight. Precisely. I think, I think it also gets a lot more long-term thinking people in, so to speak. Yes. Um, because you don't world needs transact your long, ETF. Yeah. The world needs more long-term thinking people right now. I think, I, I think the world needs some, Hey, let's slow down. Let's, re let's revisit infrastructure. Let's revisit these very, very big systems we have in place, like the education system. Why are we still running on a calendar that it was invented to accommodate uh, the farming harvest? Like the, the, the why? You're talking Nobody, about daylight savings time? I'm talking about talking that. About I'm talking about like summer school, school calendar, like like summer school. Like why are these kids out for two months for, for some random reason? Like what's because the point? Because that's when the swimming pools are awesome, dude. Nobody's harvesting any crops. We need we need like year round schooling is what we need. I know oh, there's a lot no, of parents no, right now. 
you you need to you need to think about phases and cycles it's not just harvest there's a lot of cycles humans need for ritual for rest for relaxation for recharge there's a reason we have seasons man yeah but two months two two months used to be three i don't know why i don't know when it got to be two i always had a three-month summer when i was going to school oh they're getting but to recap it's the good about ETF is it makes it harder to take away. It raises and stabilizes the price. Three, it gets yes. a lot more long-term thinking. Four, it reduces pressure on scaling. Five, it increases the volume and liquidity. And six, less risky. Does that sound like a good summary of the good? I think it's a good summary. I mean, yeah. Okay. Now, what's bad? What would what bad would happen if an ETF comes in? Go. I think the correlation between I think the the myth. Uh, Bitcoin being uh, inversely correlated to uh, the fi- the current financial markets or financial incumbents, I think that myth vaporizes. I think it becomes one to one on some factor. I think it's after that it's boom. We already so know it increases Wall the correlation. In. Yeah, it increases, increases the, the correlation between Bitcoin and the the typical traditional markets. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you know what, man? Um Bitcoin's awfully correlated to to the financial incumbents lately, like uncomfortably so. Like one of those situations where you hate being right. That's where I feel like right now. <laughs> it's like I've been saying for like three years, yeah, well, I got Wall Street's buying this shit like it's going out of style. And now we're starting to see the numbers line up, and I'm like, oh man. I really wish I wasn't right about that. I wish they would stop buying it. Well, and well, the <laughs> other the other part of that is it's a propped up market that is correlated. Yeah, it, it's not a normal market, right? It's not a natural free market. It's being manipulated not just by the traditional manipulators, but also by an influx of cash that is going to the Vaporize. people at the top, so to say. You know. Yep. So it's like it's a little bit scary, isn't it? Like, ooh. If the market drops and Bitcoin goes right with it, Bitcoin's gonna drop a hell of a lot faster than the market does. Or maybe shit. I don't know. Market's like doing crazy numbers now, too. So um yeah. I think it's so, short term correlated, long term not. Just like money, the difference between money and currency, right? Mm-hmm. The if people if people are losing their shirt on a traditional market and they've got some Bitcoin and they need to pay bills, the Bitcoin's going to be sold. It's, it's another quick liquidity asset, just like anything else they have. So in the short term, when short term panic happens, yeah, I can see Bitcoin going down when long-term systemic panic takes hold, something stable like gold, silver, Bitcoin, those become quickly uncorrelated mm-hmm. just like i mean you've seen bitcoin prices go up when world tensions go up yes that is true right that's right? a correlation so, i like and and the the stocks go down so there is a 100 percent anti-correlation when something like that happens true. so and that's the that's that's part of that but i got some things that I think might be bad about ETF. Cause you know, we, we both agree the price will grow up and when moon and I want my Lambo and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. But I think I think the downsides of ETFs, I mean, one, it opens up that manipulation. I mean, you were kind of alluding to that with the the myth of the inverse correlation being vaporized. I think it mm-hmm. also opens up to more manipulation because now hedge fund managers and ETF managers and politicians are now like, oh, well, yeah, I need to get in now. Let me make some rules or let me make some moves that make me money and screw the the ITF, the ETF itself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think worse is it, it doesn't teach people custody. People don't want to learn custody though. Wayne. I know, but, but just like Coinbase makes it real easy to get into cryptocurrency and then not have to be your own custodian, which I think is a good thing for on-ramping people. I, I really dislike it when people who've been around crypto forever say, no, 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 don't, don't ever go to Coinbase. You need to do, and then list off 3 million things that they got to learn and mm-hmm. they're going to make a mistake, right? I never you need to that. be eased into it, right? You'd be proud of me, Wayne. I just say, go to Coinbase. Well, I know. You're, give back, come back to me. That's what, I, that's what that's I'm right. saying. And then let's let's do a small test transaction. But I think not only does it not teach, teach custody, it goes away from the idea of sovereign money so that, you know, not, not your keys, not your coins, and being responsible for your money. But worse than that, it puts the wrong people in custody of the money. Like yeah. the hedge fund managers and like the people who are just coldly and blindly and potentially corruptly funneling the Bitcoin, which means now they have a voice for consensus. And if, for example, a new BIP comes through that adds really good privacy, but there's an ETF or in town that owns a million Bitcoin, do you think they're going to adopt the user activated soft fork or a hard fork? that puts in new privacy when the government's putting their thumb on the owner of the ETF saying, yeah, no, but no, it's no, not no. really up to them though. It's up to the nodes. It's it up is. To the miners. Well, I know, but the, 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 someone who has a million Bitcoin as an ETF, they can afford to now be a much bigger role. It's not just the miners who make the rules. It's a, it's a big ecosystem. And so I, I think I think there's a danger there that I don't think necessarily that the incentives of an ETF holder or an incentives of an exchange map exactly to the incentives of people who like solid and sovereign money. Mm-hmm. Forks. I mean, even forks. I mean, and, yeah, just like right. ETF, you know, just like Coinbase, you know, they get the fork and then they decide whether or not they're going to get sued if they don't give you the fork. You know, yeah. people didn't get their Bitcoin cash and their Bitcoin SV for a long time, and they probably wouldn't have if they hadn't been sued. And so an ETF holder, if there's forks there, or if they adopt a fork, what if a new fork comes along and they're able to, you know, not adopt the fork that gives us privacy or gives us something else? Or there's, you know, they're they're now funded because they have this money and they're charging a management fee, they can start hiring programmers like Blockstream and other people who are influencing the way Bitcoin goes. So I, th- I think there's some downsides that, that might happen there um, that I, I think I mean, people yeah. should know. 
You're not wrong. I, th- I I definitely think there's downsides. I, I definitely know there's going to be downsides. You can't just get implement one thing and not expect. That's something I learned just in life recently this year, I'd say, is when you fix one problem, you probably created, let's hope, just one other problem. Like that seems to be <laughs> the way things work. Hope is just one thing that you, you fix one thing, you broke something else. Like it's just the way it works out. Like if you fix your, if you fix some plumbing, or something, then now the pressure's too high, and somewhere downstream you've got a elbow joint that's leaking now. So you gotta like go investigate that. I don't know. It's just like well, let me let me ask you your price prediction in a different way, and this is okay. going to be less prediction. And it's both the low and the high. What low price of Bitcoin really will make you think? Okay, th- this really isn't this isn't for me anymore, and I'm just not into Bitcoin anymore. I'm going to be into other things. What price would make you think that? Uh, there isn't one. There's so literally, if Bitcoin got to be ten dollars and stayed there for a week, you'd still be interested in Bitcoin. I'd be buying the shit out of it. Yeah, probably. Probably. Okay, and then the because I you know I also think that it's not realistic for Bitcoin to go to zero or even approach that because there still are millions of people interested Mm -hmm. in it. But I mean, I can see also a consensus rule where, you know, let's say Bitcoin did change in a way that we didn't think would happen. And all of a sudden that, you know, something else happened where like the consensus did change it to a hundred million coins instead of 20 million coins. I mean, that can change in the code as if everybody agrees. So, um, all right. So the, the, the converse to that is at what high price, and let's say, you know, the same thing, it would have to sustain for a week, not just hit it. But let's say it's sustained for a week. What price would make you think we made it? We're not going down from this. We are We are now, we're now there. And, you know, you kind of, you, you get everything you want. Price. It's, it's not going to be a price, Wayne. I'll tell you what uh-huh. it's actually going to be. It's going to be when I walk into a place like, Coles, and they have a nice fancy digital price tag and on that digital price tag their items are priced in bitcoin with some sort of other metric to let you know how fair that pricing is maybe it's a 90-day roll like when bitcoin's volatility is predictably so low that the pricing that they're giving you is fair with a certain index that people just know like oh that's bitcoin on the 90 or Bitcoin on the 120 or whatever. I don't know. Oh, okay. Then then I will say, okay, Bitcoin's finally made it. If people are walking around thinking about prices in Bitcoin, then I will then I'll say. So it and and it so I would guess the price would have to be high. The price in current dollars that we know cuz you know we might hyperinflate over the next 5 years and dollars are like what? So it would seem to me the logical conclusion there would be when things are priced in Satoshi's for you. Yes. Yes. When yeah. things are priced in Satoshi's and maybe there's some neat symbol for Satoshi's. Uh, but I do know the dollar I'm probably going to be long gone before this happens, but the dollar is not going to be the end all be all of like humanity. It's not, it's going to be a chapter in our very long history because there's other cool shit that we have left to do. And the dollar is not going to translate to that awesome world. Well, not. there is a, a, you know, we spoke of cycles before. I mean, 84 to 100 year cycle of fiat. 
you know, mm-hmm. if you count the current dollar as coming from the thirties, when, you know, the gold was taken away from people mm-hmm. or you do it from the Brent Wood, Britain woods contract, then, you know, we might be due for this currency going away and being replaced by something. And I think, having satoshi be you know oh it's a million satoshis that'll feel like more like oh it's a million dollars so if a satoshi gets down to the penny or the dollar type of you know what that is to us to now where a loaf of bread is 120 satoshis let's say you know you would index things in life that are more stable like bread and eggs and milk or the going rate of a haircut right whatever it is or for you a playstation I want to get me a PlayStation. How much is a PlayStation? Oh, well, that'll be, you know, 15,000 Satoshis. Maybe it'd be 1,200 Satoshis. And then with light, lightning, we get sub-Satoshi capabilities. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be on chain, you got to be, you know, at least probably, I mean, just to handle the fees, probably 100 Satoshis or more. And then everything else would be in lightning and everybody gets a light, you know, a couple lightning nodes on their phone or whatever. I, I see that happening and I see that happening in, you know, less than a decade. Yeah. It, I think it, I think it will. And I'll be happy then. I think what's going on in Ethereum, Ethereum is the evolved original Bitcoiner and Bitcoin is now the, okay, how in the hell are we going to cross that chasm and get people to start using cryptocurrency? Like I think Bitcoin is creeping towards crossing the chasm. Ethereum is still stuck in the hay. This is crazy crypto shit, baby. It's, this is crazy. We got win Bitcoin. We got rent Bitcoin. All right, we got wrap Bitcoin. We got compound finance. We got definance. We're doing our own thing here. And it's like, all right, guys, nobody thinks like that. Nobody's ever going to think like that. No one in. If you could tell someone, hey, man, take your dollar, put it in this machine so it can work on that machine. And that machine does cooler stuff than this machine and then you're gonna get back your dollar when that machine's done with it they're gonna go like dude are you fucking crazy and then you're gonna say like i'm not crazy it's cool right and they're gonna know no it's not cool i'd rather actually go do something that's cool and then i remember <laughs> then i remember when i could put money in a bank and it would get me interest yeah remember that not 0.001 percent interest but you can actually get interest and a 10-year CD had certain interests. So there was a way that the monetary system worked that those with money could get more money by lending it to others because it produced productivity and things. And I think with DeFi, and when I mean, you're talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum, I mean, obviously Bitcoin is a very slow to change, slow to move thing that has tremendous armor, tremendous stability, in terms of its security. And then Ethereum mm-hmm. is still changing and we have no idea what proof of stake is going to be like in the world. It's really just like Bitcoin had never had uh, anything like it until it came around. And Ethereum had nothing like it until it came around. When Ethereum changes once again, whether it be Ethereum 2.0, 3.0, proof of stake, all these different things, sharding and the things that come up, we still have no idea other than uh, theoretics and you know a little bit of test net of what w- it will actually do. I mean, nobody saw flash lo- loans coming up with DeFi and all the different things that can happen. 
this is going to be the same thing with proof of stake. Nobody's going to see the major things that are going to, you know, knock us on our butts. And some of it's going to lift us into the heavens. We don't know what's going to happen until, until it does. But I think it's been a riveting discussion. I appreciate the time. Oh yeah. This is fun. You should just come back like, like regularly every once in a while when Corey gets through staring into his baby's eyes. Cause that's pretty much all he's done <laughs> doing. Uh, you know, when he comes back on, you know, just come back and uh, we can have these discussions regularly. But um, so if, for those of you listening to the Bitcoin podcast right now, thank you. Um, I don't know. I'm a little bit too old to know how to say all the hold up. What is it like? Like, subscribe, ding the bell. I don't know. You got an app. And if you want to keep listening to click it, you know, like click, click the button. OK, here's the deal. D, D. you, you got to give them one thing to do. Oh, shit. You don't okay. tell them all the things to do. You say, okay, look, to this week, just tell somebody about the Bitcoin podcast. That's all, right, all yeah, you yeah. got to do. You got one thing to do. Yep. yep. Share share this episode with one person. That's all we ask. There you and go. And then next time, ask them to post it, you know, find you and subscribe on Twitter. And then the next time you ask them for something else, then you t- talk about your book. And then each one, you give everybody one action. There you go. There we go. So we do all kinds of stuff. What I want you to do this week, though is share this episode with your aunt. That's what I would like you to do. <laughs> share it with your aunt so she can tell all of her bingo friends. All right, guys. Uh, that's it. Um, shout out to Zazie Beats. Play the outro. And you're not hearing music because you thought it was over. It's not over. We wanted to wish you guys a happy Father's Day. Um, happy Father's Day to everyone out there. And look, look, if you got a father, buy him some Bitcoin. If you are a father, <laughs> put some Bitcoin away for your children. And it can be $10 worth. It doesn't really matter. Do something. Set That's up right. dollar cost averaging. Set up Swan Bitcoin or whatever it was called. You guys had those guys on, you know, a month ago or something. Set up something. <laughs> <laughs>